You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow, as it assumes you have the necessary training, qualifications and experience to understand the concepts discussed as well as the technical language used. If you still decide to listen, please understand the information contained in this recording is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Any scenarios considered during this podcast are purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. In October 2019, a new law was enacted that will include a member's share of certain limited recourse borrowing arrangements entered into on or after 1 July 2018 in their total superannuation balance. Now, this is important as it may impact certain members' ability to make non-concessional contributions as well as access certain rules and concessions such as the catch-up concessional contribution rules. I'm Craig Day and I'm head of the First Tech team and here to discuss these new rules with me and how they may impact clients is Tim Sanderson, Senior Technical Services Manager. G'day Tim. Hi Craig. Now Tim, you're joining us from our Orange office today, so you're on the phone, so uh, for those listeners, if if Tim sounds a little bit distant, that's because he is, he's a couple of hundred kilometres away (laughs) on the phone. So Tim, uh, these changes, which could impact a member's total super balance, um, we're going to go through those, but before we do, can you just remind me why a member's total superannuation balance is important? Because it's a bit of a, a key concept in superannuation these days, isn't it? That's right, and yeah, I sure can. So, uh, a member's total super balance, and it, it's basically measured at 30 June each financial year, um, and it's an important measurement because it's used to determine eligibility for a range of super concessions. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they include the non-concessional cap. Um, so not just whether a member will have a non-concessional cap or not, but also whether they can access either a three- or two-year bring-forth period, if otherwise eligible. Um, their ability to carry forward unused concessional cap amounts for up to five years. Um, and SMSS ability to um, use the segregated assets method. That's based on potentially a member's total super balance. Also, an SMSF's uh, transfer balance account reporting timeframes, so whether it's an annual or quarterly reporter. Uh, a member's access to the work test exemption, um, eligibility to get the government co-contribution, and also the potential to get a spouse contribution tax offset um, where a person's making uh, spouse contributions for their spouse. Yeah, that, those rules are, are actually quite difficult for advisors these days, aren't they? I mean, if we just look at those non-concessional caps, we've got... The 1.6 million cap, which uh, or threshold really, if you've got a total super balance up and over 1.6 million, your non-concessional cap therefore is is actually zero. But we've also got that between 1.4 and 1.5, and then between 1.5 and 1.6, um, your ability to actually utilise those bring forward rules that you mentioned before. Um, also, catch up concessional contribution. So um, total super balance there is for eligible clients five five hundred thousand. Yeah. So- Less, less than 500000 in order to, um, in the year that you want to use those unused cap amounts. Um, um, and, of course, the work test exemption, that's a $300,000, um, under $300,000 total super balance requirement. So it's a different figure yet again. So the important thing I, I probably take away from that is um, these rules that we're just about to talk about, while 
they could impact, uh, you know, someone with a very large self-managed super fund, you know, up and over 1.6 million total super, superannuation balance could impact their ability to make non-concessional contributions. That may not be a lot of people, but if we look at your ability to use catch-up concessional contributions, that's a $500,000 threshold. So, yes, we certainly may see some people impacted by these new rules and their ability to make non-concessional contributions, but I also think there may well be a lot of people here impacted by these changes in terms of their ability to make catch-up concessional contributions uh, since the 1st of July 2018. Um, so, Tim, total super balance, remind me, how is it calculated? Not a problem. So, of course, it was introduced uh, in on effective 1 July 2017, um, and as I mentioned, it's measured each 30 June effectively. But it, the calculation broadly includes looking at the value of all of the members' retirement phase, uh, interests, um, all of their accumulation interests, and that includes income streams that are not in retirement phase, like certain TTR income streams, um, and also if you've got rollovers that are in transit when that measurement occurs, um, the value of those is included as well. Yeah, we also what do we we also deduct a, uh, deduct off structured settlement contributions. So where someone's got some compensation money and they're, and they're, they're depositing that into or contributing that into superannuation, we deduct those amounts off as well. That's, so it's a reasonably complex calculation. If you've just got a simple accumulation interest though, um, it's just essentially the account balance of that accumulation interest. If you've got something like an account-based pension, it's the value of that account-based pension. Um, but what are these new rules gonna do? How does that change that calculation? Yeah, so it will, um, it will lead to an additional amount counting towards total super balance for certain people where there's limited recourse borrowings in place, um, you know, a, a SMSF or a small APRA fund. Um, and these changes, they were originally proposed in a bill quite some time ago. Um, that bill lapsed uh, when the last federal election occurred, which I think was um, earlier last year. Yep. Um, and the, the, the change, so that the, it's now been reintroduced uh, in a separate bill passed through Parliament, as you mentioned, in October last year. Um, and the rules basically uh, include a member's share of certain outstanding, outstanding limited recourse loan amounts, um, and these are officially known as a member's LRBA amounts. Uh, it will include that in their total super balance, where either the loan was entered into on or after 1 July 2018, as you, you touched on, uh, but also it only applies where either the member in question has satisfied a condition of release or where the loan is between the fund and an associate of the fund. Okay, so a couple of important points there. First one, um, this only applies where the limited recourse borrowing arrangement was entered into on or after the 1st of July 2018. So if I've got a client there that took out, with a self-managed fund that took out a limited recourse borrowing arrangement, let's say, back in 2015 and that loan is still in place, I don't have to worry about these rules. Correct. Right, yep. terrific. Um, so why the need for the change? I mean, it does seem a little bit unfair to include an outstanding loan liability in a member's total super balance if that loan liability doesn't actually increase the member's account balance. Why are they doing this? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think from the government's perspective, they see it as an integrity issue um, to potentially stop two things. Um, firstly, stopping people having the ability to withdraw their money, which would reduce their total super balance. 
but then essentially put that back into the fund by arranging for the fund to borrow the, the same amount. Right. Um, and also making what is really a contribution look like a loan so that it doesn't impact the member's total super balance. Right. So it really does come back to these you know, the self-managed super fund. I suppose that's why they've just applied these rules for a, for a small APRA fund or a self-managed super fund entering into these types of arrangements because I can imagine it might be a bit hard to try and, uh, p try and manipulate total super balances if you're a member of a large fund. Or typically, large funds simply just don't enter into li limited recourse borrowing arrangements anyway. You mentioned there that the new rules apply with a limited recourse borrowing arrangement was entered into on or after the 1st of July 2018. Now, is that based on the date of the contract or where, when the loan was funded? Because we have seen different rules over different periods of time look at either the contract date or when the money hits the fund. Which is it? Is it the contract date or when the loan money hits the fund? So it is the date the, con the loan contract is entered into. So that is, that is an important point. That's the date that, that we test whether it's on or after 1 July 2018. Um, and it's probably worth mentioning here, you know, one area of uncertainty or concern, I guess, might be SMSFs that are entering into LRBAs as part of an off-the-plan purchase. Now, they may enter into a contract to purchase the property, but then not enter into the loan contract until, um, you know, a few years into the future. Yeah. Um, so it's important to note that if the date of the contract for the loan is on or after 1 July 2018. Not for the purchase um, of the Then property. it would appear to be caught by those changes. Yeah, that's a really important point you make. So I can imagine if, if I'd gone and bought an apartment off the plan and I, and I entered into that contract to purchase that apartment, let's say, 18 months ago, and that's going to settle, let's say, you know, in, in May this year, so we're getting close to completion, uh, the property developer is telling me to go out and, and organise my um, settlement date, or they're giving me a settlement date, so I've got to go out and organise a loan through my self-managed super fund. The contract date for the loan is going to be on or after 1 July 2018. doesn't matter that I purchased the property before 1 July 2018. If the loan is post on or after 1 July 2018, I've got to potentially worry about these rules here. Yeah. So that, that's really quite important. As I said, it's, it's only new loans, really, that we need to, to worry about. So I don't have to worry about these rules impacting my clients with pre-existing LRBA arrangements. What about if I've got a client that entered into an arrangement uh, several years ago, and now they're looking to refinance. So will they be impacted? Um, so there are rules in place to allow pre-existing LRBAs entered into prior to 1 July 2018 to remain exempt from these rules. Um, and that can apply as long as the re that will allow refinancing, and that can occur as long as the new loan is against the same asset. Um, and there's no increase in borrowing measuring, you know, the the end value of your existing loan versus the new value of, of the new loan. So provided those two rules are met, we can refinance on or after 1 July 2018 and that grandfathering or exemption can continue. Right, so I can't refinance into a different asset or borrow more money. If I, if I was to do all of that, um, then I'm going to be captured by these new rules. But I've, if I'm simply just entering into... Uh, a refinancing arrangement over an existing property uh, that I already own um, and the new refinance debt would be held against that policy and I'm not taking out any additional loans, 
then uh, those arrangements will continue to be exempt even if I uh, refinance on or after 1 July 2018. Okay, terrific. Now, you also mentioned the new rules only apply where a member has satisfied a condition of release or the loan was from an associate. Now, if we look at the condition of release rules first, um, does it apply if the member has satisfied any condition of release? Because there's a number of them there. There is, yeah, and no, it doesn't. Um, so they're very similar conditions of release to uh, when you look at when a transition to retirement income becomes a retirement phase income stream. Right. So the relevant conditions of release there are retirement, terminal medical condition, permanent incapacity, or reaching age 65. Right, so if I'm someone that uh, has met a condition of release for retirement... So let's say I've turned 60 and changed an arrangement of employment or I've reached preservation age and I've declared that I never intend to work uh, in either a part-time or full-time capacity again, then I've satisfied a retirement condition of release and therefore I'm potentially impacted by these rules. Now, um, as I said before, there's a whole bunch of conditions of release. So, for example, what, a bit of, what about if I've reached my preservation age and start a transition to retirement income stream? then no, that wouldn't, even though you're receiving an income stream, that wouldn't mean that you've met a condition of release for this purpose. And therefore, until you meet one of those conditions of release that we talked about, you won't get caught by these rules, except in situations where the loan is with an associate of the fund. Right, okay. And what, what about if my spouse has passed away and I'm receiving a death benefit income stream from the fund? So... Uh, in that situation, all of their benefits there coming out of that, uh, that death benefit income stream would be unrestricted, non-preserved. So from what you're telling me, because it's one, not one of those specified conditions of release, that also wouldn't trigger me being caught by these rules. That, that's right. So even though you have unrestricted, non-preserved money, you haven't met one of those conditions of release. And so until you do, these rules wouldn't apply to you. Okay, so that's actually going to be quite in, uh, important for dealing with a, an administrator or potentially uh, an auditor because they may be coming in and seeing that the member's got some unrestricted, non-preserved money sitting there and may not know that that's due to a death benefit income stream and therefore may be tempted to report that uh, to the ATO as, uh, as an outstanding loan amount. So we just need to make sure that the administrator knows that uh, even though that we've got some unrestricted non-preserved monies there, that shouldn't be counting or being reported off to the ATO uh, for these purposes. Yeah, I was just going to say, so that's probably why it's important um, to check the SMSF documentation um, prior to it being submitted, just to make sure those loan amounts, which will be on there, um, are showing correctly and not showing where they, when they shouldn't be. Right. What happens if I have a fund with one retired member and one member in accumulation phase? So the rules apply, um, assuming that we're not talking about it uh, and a loan between an associate and the fund, the rules apply at a member level um, in this situation. So only the retired member would have a, a proportion or an LRBA amount, if you like, count towards their total super balance and the accumulation member won't be impacted. Right. Okay. So you could have... You know, two members of a self-managed super fund with a with a, a limited recourse borrowing arrangement that's impacted by these rules, and only have one member um, having uh, an outstanding amount counting towards their total super balance, and the other one would be exempt. That's true. Yep. 
Right, okay, interesting. You mentioned here that the rules also impact uh, funds where the, the loan is from an associate of the fund. An associate. We do have a definition of associate that's included in the CISAC, but um, we're using a different definition of associate here, aren't we, for these rules? That's, that's right. Um, so we're, we're instead using a definition which is in the 1936 Tax Act. The rules are similar to the CIS definition that we're probably all much more familiar with. So a similar group of people it's going to catch. Um, but I think the reason that they use the tax definition instead is that the CIS definition of associate looks at a member and their associates. But in this case, we're looking at who is an associate of the fund trustee, not the member. Yeah, because it's um, the fund that's borrowed, isn't it? So we have to look at who are the associates of the fund. Exactly. But um, when you go through the definition, it does cap capture a similar group of people and potentially entities. So things like um, members, their relatives, either general law or tax law partners of a member, and also you know companies or trusts that are effectively controlled by a member and their other associates, or where a trust where a member and their other associates could benefit from that trust. Right. So if I was uh, a member of a self-managed fund and I thought, well, if I lend money to my self-managed fund, then I'm potentially caught by these rules. So what I could try and do is get my private company to be the lender instead. And what you're telling me, that doesn't work. They're going to capture my company that I control because I'm the significant shareholder or maybe I own 100% of the shares. That's going to get captured exactly the same as a related party definition for the CIS purposes. That's going to get captured as an associate. So as soon as I'm lending money from that, that corporate entity, that's a loan from an associate. So it triggers these rules. That's right, yes. Okay, and what about, uh, did you mention there, uh, I can't remember, relatives, who my, my grandson to, to give me a loan? No, unfortunately not. So right. relatives, um, they would be in, in the definition of relatives. So relative is an associate, and therefore if your grandchild lent to your funds, that's a, a loan with an, with an associate. Yeah. Now, this is an interesting one, and I might be catching you out here. Uh, a really weird little part of the, the CIS definition of related party when you look at relatives, it actually excludes a cousin. So uh, a cousin is not a related party for, for CIS uh, rules. I wonder whether I could actually borrow from a cousin. We'd have to have a look at that. Do you know off the top of your head? No, I don't, unfortunately. I mean, the CIS rules, um, uh, uh, you're right, for investment purposes, it excludes um, cousins and second cousins, for example, um, yeah, not sure about whether the definition of relative no. uh, in the Tax Act would align with that or no. would be a, a yeah. sort of broader definition. Well, all I can say is that if you've got a cousin that wants to lend money into your self-managed super fund uh, and you're unsure of whether you're going to be caught by these rules, give us a call and we'll be able to track that down for you. If the loan is from a member, does that just impact the member's total super balance? So we've got a loan coming in here from an associate, which in this case just happens to be a member. Do I only include their share of the outstanding loan amount in total super balance or is this impacting all members of the fund? No, so that's an important point. Um, if the loan is from an associate such as a member, then the rules potentially impact all members of the fund, not just the member who has loaned. So an associate has loaned to the fund, that potentially impacts all fund members. Okay, all right. So, um, and, and it's, it's, Yeah, important to note that's different where a member has satisfied a condition of release and the, and the lender is not an associate. Um, in that case, it would only be the member who's satisfied the condition of release who's impacted. All right. So just to reiterate so far, so we've got um, a limited recourse borrowing arrangement entered on to, into on or after 1 July 2018. 
the loan is being made to a self-managed super fund or a small APRA fund, and either the member themselves has set aside a condition of release for retirement, terminal medical condition and permanent incapacity or turning 65, or this loan is being funded or lent into the self-managed super fund by an associate of the fund, which would include a member of the fund, that member's relatives, as well as any company or trust effectively controlled by that member or any of their relatives. So as soon as we've satisfied all of those requirements, then we're potentially impacted by these rules. If we do have a member impacted, how do we calculate the amount that counts towards their total super balance? So it would seem to me that it would be fair that you would only be calculating their proportionate share of that outstanding loan amount. Is that the way they do it? That's right. So if you've got one member who's single member fund, for example, then if the member's impacted, it's going to be all of the outstanding loan amount. But when there is multiple members, the amount that's calculated to be included in their total super balance is the outstanding loan balance. And then we need to look at all of the supported interests in the fund. And a supported interest is really one which is supported by the asset that is subject to that LRBA arrangement. Um, and we then look at all of those supported interests, what proportion of those values in relation to the member, and that proportion is multiplied by the outstanding balance, and that is the amount that counts towards the member's total super balance. Right. Um, so, so let's say, for, as a simple example, the member has 50% share of supported interests, and the loan balance is $100,000, then $50,000 is going to count towards the member's total super balance. Okay. That assumes, though, that we've got... Um, so if we've got multiple members in a fund, that assumes that we're running some sort of unsegregated investment strategy. So we've got the one investment pool, um, we've got the one investment strategy, we've got the the asset that we've acquired with this limited recourse borrowing arrangement, um, and all members' benefits are derived from the value of the assets in that pool. Is that right? That's right. That's where you've got an unsegregated approach and you've got one big pool of assets and there's a LRBA asset and loan in place, then all interests in the fund will be supported interests. Okay, so what would happen if, um, and from time to time you see this, it's not that common, but you do see it, um, and that's where we've got a fund with members with very different potentially risk profiles, or you've got a fund with members that um, want to maintain their own asset pools. So you're actually running a segregated strategy. Now, most people talk about segregation for tax purposes, but in this case, we're actually running a segregated uh, a policy or strategy for investment purposes. So I've got two pools of assets. I've got fund or member A, and they've got all their assets in pool A, and then we've got member B and all their assets going to, to pool B, and we run two investment strategies. What would happen if... Um, one of those members has a limited recourse borrowing arrangement in their investment pool, but the other one doesn't. No. So let's assume member A's asset pool had the uh, LRBA asset and loan as part of that asset pool. Member A is the only one that can be impacted by that because member A is the only one with supported, supported interests. Okay. Um, and so in that situation, member, member B completely not subject to these rules. Okay, and that's important because that, that still applies even if we have an associate as the lender. So before we were saying, if you've got an associate of a lender, then that impacts all members of the fund, but only to the extent that 
that they've got a, a supported interest. Exactly. And, and it's probably worth mentioning here, um, obviously people might be thinking that, well, if we have a segregate, if we segregate the LRBA property, let's say, into a particular member's pool, does that, can we protect a member who is otherwise going to have an amount count towards their total super balance? Um, what the explanatory memorandum introducing this change made clear was, you know, you shouldn't be trying to manipulate the total super balance by uh, yeah. um, intentionally using segregated asset strategies because the Part 4A anti-avoidance provisions may apply in that situation. So an example of that could be, you know, moving an LRBA-secured asset um, deliberately into the asset pool of a member who hasn't satisfied an eligible condition of release, where previously that asset was securing all interests in the fund. Yeah, so basically don't, don't play funny buggers, don't, don't move this asset in and out of segregated pools just before 30 June in a year and then back into an unsegregated pool just after 30 June because we know total super balance is measured on 30 June. So if you play, try and play those kinds of games, the ATO are saying that they'd throw part 4A at you, so tax avoidance. Yep. Yep. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, from a timing perspective, this captures amounts from loans entered into on or after the 1st of July. So what are the practical implications of these rule changes? Well, as well as um, what we mentioned earlier, um, which looked at the impacts in, uh, at these amounts being added to total super balance potentially impacting eligibility for a range of super concessions. So that might be you know, a member's ability to make large non-concessional contributions to pay off outstanding debt in the fund, mm -hmm. uh, or the member's ability, for example, to utilise the catch-up concessional contribution measure. Um, I guess from an admin perspective, it is going to be important that these amounts are going to have to be calculated by the fund and reported. So that's going to mean the fund is going to need a loan statement for that loan at 30 June each year, showing the outstanding loan at that date. Right, and also, I suppose from a um, from an administration administration perspective, um, because we need to calculate. If you've got two or more members, we've got to calculate their share of that outstanding loan amount. So we actually need to know what the value of their interests are on thirty June. So for a self managed super fund, I'd imagine all of this work is going to be done when, um, even though you go and get your loan statement as at thirty June. Um, the actual calculation of the members' supported interests uh, won't be done until the fund lodges or does its annual um, uh, tax statement, I, I suppose, when the, when the accountant comes in and, and does the financials and determines uh, the value of each member's interest. Um, and then that will then be used to define their share of that outstanding loan balance as at 30 June. That's right. And it appears these amounts will be reported through the SMSF's annual return through to the ATO. I think that's about it, Tim. Is there anything else we need to know? No, I think that pretty much covers it. All right. Well, um, for those for those advisors with clients with, uh, with self-managed super funds that have undertaken a limited recourse borrowing arrangement on or after the 1st of July 2018, obviously an important issue to consider. Uh, if you've got any questions about this, uh, we do have an article in the February edition of First Tech Monthly, so go and have a look at that, or give us a, give us a call in the First Tech team. Anyway, thanks for that, Tim. Thanks, no worries. See you, everyone. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. 
Please remember, these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, you need to remember that any scenarios considered during this podcast were for purely hypothetical and illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. And finally, you should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decision and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be reliable and accurate, no person including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited or Commonwealth Bank Group of Companies accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.